You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 7th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. The spectacular flameout of nuclear power and clean coal in the U.S. is nothing new to this podcast listeners, particularly the Votal Nuclear Plant in Georgia, the V.C. Summer Nuclear Plant in South Carolina, and the Kemper Clean Coal Plant in Mississippi. But we haven't yet done a deep dive on the topic, partly because the subject is really complicated with a lot of details, and getting good, clear, vetted information on exactly what went wrong with the new plants has been difficult. But also because I couldn't find a good guest who knew about those details enough, let alone one who had an expert knowledge, not only of the plants in question, but also of the legal underpinnings that allowed these boondoggles to happen in the first place. But all that has changed now thanks to some terrific work by the staff of the Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper, The Post and Courier, of Charleston, South Carolina, which also has the distinction of being the oldest daily newspaper in the South. A long-form piece they published in December titled Power Failure was a refreshing and highly recommended bit of old-school investigative journalism which detailed how South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi have, in their words, torched more than $40 billion on new plants and upgrades on projects that went far over budget or never produced a zap of electricity. That piece is one of a whole series of articles published by the Post and Courier in recent months, which has torn the lid off of not only a story about failed power plants and poor planning by utilities, but also of a long history of reckless behavior, if not outright fraud and corruption, by contractors, utilities, their regulators, and legislators, which has saddled customers in the South with billions in totally unnecessary and pointless expenses, which they have already paid and will continue to pay for years to come. One of those reporters is Thad Moore, who was on the business beat at the Post and Courier before being drawn into the team covering South Carolina's failed nuclear project. He's one of the very few people I could think of who really has a great grasp of the topic and who could help us understand the decade of twists and turns that led us to where we are today and possibly point the way to reforms that will hopefully prevent these kinds of projects from ever happening again. He has a wealth of knowledge to share, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll discuss the final decision on the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California, first decision about the DOE's NOPER, how the grid in the northeastern U.S. survived the cold snap of early January, and an unprecedented solicitation in Colorado that turned up some amazing bids for new solar and wind projects. But first, our conversation with Thad Moore, recorded January 12th, 2017. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Thad, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. 
So over the past several months, you and your colleagues at the Post and Courier have published a terrific series of well-researched articles about grid power in the South, including what went wrong with Vogel and VC Summer nuclear plants in Georgia and South Carolina, respectively, plus the clean coal boondoggle at the Kemper plant in Mississippi, and how these expensive mistakes will affect ratepayers in those states, as well as some deep reporting on the cozy relationship between some regulators in those states and the utilities they're supposed to be regulating. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, so I just want to start with the basic facts about each of these projects in turn, and then we'll talk about why it all went wrong and what the issue is with advanced cost recovery. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds great. Okay, so let's start with the VC Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina. We've briefly mentioned this in one or two of the news segments of this show previously, but this was a two-reactor expansion of an existing plant, if I've got my facts right, majority owned by Scana, with a minority stake held by the state-owned utility Santee Cooper. In July of last year, the two utilities decided to abandon the project, which was running way over schedule and budget. The project cost had ballooned to $25 billion, and the project was already facing $9 billion in debt. Customers had already paid out $1.8 billion on the project when it was canceled, and they're still showing out $37 million a month, or about one-fifth of their bills, even though the project has been canceled. There is still more than $9 billion to be paid on it. So let's talk about what went wrong here. How did this project get approved in the first place, and then get so mired in debt and delays? That is the question in South Carolina these days. It's really taken up a lot of the political bandwidth of the state, and it's become a huge issue down here, as you can imagine. The $9 billion that was spent on this plant is bigger than the state's budget in a typical year. So the summer plant goes back actually all the way to 2005 with the Federal Energy Policy Act, and that act essentially incentivized new nuclear production. And a lot of southern states really took up that mantle, and South Carolina was one of the first ones. So in 2008, our project sort of got underway with approval from the utility regulators here who sort of signed off on this project that used Westinghouse's AP1000 design. And at that point, the focus was really on on the population growth South Carolina was experiencing and, and the population growth we were expecting. Obviously, the South and South Carolina in particular have, have been growing an awful lot. And there was also a big reliance on coal here, which was concerning with sort of the political wins in 2008 and in what then-candidate Barack Obama was talking about with, you know, potentially a carbon tax or some sort of other carbon mitigation policy. So essentially, it seemed like the sort of generation mix here was kind of untenable. And while there's a lot of talk about the sort of prospects for, you know, a potentially affordable and sort of state-of-the-art technology, there wasn't that much talk about the risks of building this new design. And of course, we've now seen what those risks look like. Yeah, Westinghouse went bankrupt and basically threatened to take Toshiba down with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of incredible. Basically, from what we've found in our reporting, and I'm sure there's more to it that, you know, it's just such a complex project. But, you know, there were designs that were unable to be constructed, and some of the engineering designs didn't have the sign-off of sort of certified engineering in the state. There was sort of an incomplete construction schedule. There were problems with manufacturing since this reactor was supposed to basically use sort of modular manufacturing off-site and then sort of just plug and play when you get to the site. And that didn't work. So there was a lot of, you know, changes being made on site. And then the contractors, Westinghouse and Shaw, CB&I, just didn't get along. And so what we ended up with was a situation that 
was so massive and so costly that no one could really afford to take it on, which, like you mentioned, took down Westinghouse or moved them into bankruptcy and threatened to take down Toshiba. And now it's threatening the power companies here. It's an enormous amount of money that we're talking about. How much debt are ratepayers still on the hook for with the VC summer <laughs> plant? That's actually a really heated question down here. It's actually surprisingly hard to put a finger on. So essentially, the easier one is Santee Cooper's. It's state-owned. There are no investors for them to turn to unless it's possible that Santee Cooper could be sold and that could change the dynamic. But they're looking at $4.2 billion and that Santee Cooper has some direct customers, but they mostly serve the electric cooperatives around the state here. And Scana, it looks like ratepayers, at least under the current offer from Scana, would be about $2.2 billion that they'll end up paying over the next several decades. So that's sort of the current state of play, but it ultimately is up to regulators and the legislature to sort of divvy that up. You know, I think the thing that just constantly shocks me about this plant and the other ones that we'll discuss today mm -hmm. is how they get so far down what is obviously a bad road before anybody says, you know, guys, maybe we shouldn't keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what happened here with regulatory oversight? Was there culpability on the part of the legislature? Was the utility failing to keep people apprised of what was actually happening? Like, how did this happen? And that's one of the big questions here. And I don't know that we entirely have blame apportioned here, if that makes sense. But one of the things that's been really striking and one of the real flashpoints in all of this has been that there was a, an audit conducted on the VC summer plant. And the first draft came out in late 2015. So obviously pretty far down the road at this point. But it identified all sorts of issues with the designs and with the consortium of contractors not getting along and having a lot of infighting. Essentially, the one way that this project was ultimately killed, and it was caused by Westinghouse going bankrupt. But what happened just before that, just a few months before the bankruptcy filing, was that the power companies moved some of the risk to Westinghouse. And the risk had all been sort of piled onto ratepayers in South Carolina without really any pushback from regulators. Every rate increase they asked for was approved, mm. uh, nine in all. And nine. once the risk was, that's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like the regulators were unaware. Sure. Yeah. Well, so this report that was done in 2015 was kind of kept secret for a long time until the project had been canceled. And supposedly it was to be used for litigation against Westinghouse. But ultimately what happened was the risk was shifted to Westinghouse and Westinghouse realized just the scope of the problem they had on their hands and they filed for bankruptcy. And that's how we sort of ended up where we are today. It's amazing. All right, let's talk about the Vogel plant in Georgia. This was essentially a sister project to the VC summer plant and Vogel faced its own day of reckoning in December last year. That plant's cost has now ballooned to an estimated $25 billion, and the plant is still under construction. Late last year, a study by the Georgia Public Service Commission staff found that the plant actually had a negative net value and recommended that regulators pull the plug on it. But in December, the commission actually decided to allow the plant to continue with untold billions in costs still unpaid. So, ugh, so much to unpack here. But what happened with Vogel? So you're right that it's essentially, it's a very similar situation to the VC Summer Project. There are a couple of key differences. So one, the cost estimate is about the same. And obviously at this point, it's just an estimate. They say $25 billion, but um, as we've seen throughout this, 
that is liable to change. Yeah. One thing that's sort of interesting about the way they regulate utilities in Georgia, or at least they've regulated this project, is that they had sort of a more robust construction monitor that was able to actually identify a lot of the problems that were sort of kept secret in the South Carolina audit in 2015. So they aired out some of those problems. And obviously, that doesn't mean they didn't have problems. They just sort of were able to address them a little bit sooner, it seems like. The other thing, honestly, that's pretty crucial here, and one of the reasons that Vodal is still going and Summer is not, is that Georgia just has twice as many people. So where we're paying a fifth of our electric bills to a failed project, they're obviously paying a good deal too, but it's two times as many people, so it's a little bit less of a gut punch. Do we know how much debt ratepayers are still on the hook for with this plan? So that is... I guess to really be seen with how this project progresses. But the latest number that I've seen is about $12 billion. And obviously, as construction continues, that bill will continue to rise. And what are they saying the new completion date is? That I actually do not remember offhand. Yeah. 2023, is that right? Yeah, whatever it is, we don't believe it. All right, so... You know, but, but crucially, it's passed. I've mentioned the 2005 federal law that started this construction wave, and those tax credits expired 2020. And if Congress doesn't extend those, there's no way that Vodal will be qualifying for them. What's your sense of why the commission overruled its own staff recommendation to pull the plug on this thing? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I entirely know the answer there, but I know that part of it was they were looking to South Carolina and they saw this political backlash that was happening and just sort of the anger that was happening here about people paying so much for a project that will produce nothing. And I think that the thinking there was essentially, it's better to have something than nothing. That's sort of the sense I got. And also, there was a lot more pressure from outside sources that this is the last new nuclear project happening in the US. So it was sort of a kind of a bellwether of the future of the industry. And I think that that was part of the thinking too. So the Vogel plant is owned by Southern Company, yeah? That's right. In a group of municipal utilities and cooperatives in Georgia, too. Right. But Southern Company is the majority holder. That's right. I've, you know, seen a lot of indications, uh, reports of various kinds that this plant was so important politically to Southern Company and to its CEO, Tom Fanning, that he really would have been willing to die on this hill. That sort of no matter what the commission staff recommended, he was willing to go to sort of any length to get this project built. You know, what's your sense of the politics in Georgia and the relationship between Southern Company and the Georgia regulators? Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, you know, I'm not as familiar with the politics in Georgia. And I guess, you know, to the point of if this is a hill they're willing to tie on, I I guess we'll find out in the next several years. But what we found is in the South and certainly in Georgia and South Carolina, there's a really cozy relationship between lawmakers, policymakers, and the power companies. There's sort of a almost a sense of deference that, you know, they know what they're doing, they know what they're talking about, and, you know, they'll do right by us. And I guess at least some amount of that trust still exists in Georgia. It's a much testier situation in South Carolina, but I guess we'll see how that relationship evolves over there. Do you think that these spectacular blowouts here of the costs on these plants have in any way damaged the faith that ratepayers have in their utilities and their commissioners? Certainly they have in South Carolina. I mean, it is the hot political issue in South Carolina right now. And, you know, it's easy to understand why, because it's a company that you don't really have a choice about. 
And the average home here is paying $27 a month for a plant that's not producing anything. So yeah, it's definitely changed the relationship. Scana in South Carolina had been a really well-respected and sort of, I guess, trusted company, if you will, in the state. It's the state's largest public company. And that relationship has totally changed in the last year. Hmm. All right. So let's move on to the third biggest rogue in our little gallery here, the Kemper plant in Mississippi. So at one time, this 582 megawatt power plant was considered the nation's flagship attempt to build a clean coal plant. The plan for it was to capture and sequester around 65% of its emissions, making it about on par with a regular gas plant in emissions terms. Construction on the plant started in 2010, but it was plagued with technical problems. So finally, Southern Company, the parent company of Mississippi Power, which owns the plant, gave up on the whole clean coal idea in June of last year and said that it plans to just run the plant as a gas plant. So now the plant's cost has exploded from $1.8 billion initially to $7.5 billion when they canceled it. And as of that time, the company was still seeking to recover $3.4 billion from customers. So here we have a $7.5 billion boondoggle, which is now essentially the most expensive gas plant in history, and which, by the way, burned a $270 million grant from the Department of Energy and $133 million in tax credits. So creating nearly as large a loss as a cylinder loan. By comparison, a 700-megawatt gas plant would have generated more power than the Kemper plant, but would have only cost about $700 million, or less than a tenth of the cost of the Kemper plant. And there were indications that the Kemper plant was in trouble as far back as 2013. So, once again, how did this plant get approved and get so far along, and what went wrong with it? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing to here is that this is sort of an issue that's bigger than nuclear power, and it certainly is bigger than South Carolina or Georgia. I mean, this is really a story of untested technology, you know, whatever the fuel source, being pursued without really a very reliable schedule and sort of this unwillingness, it seems, to raise alarms when it starts to go off the rails, or at least until it's too late. So, yeah, it's sort of this situation where risk has been shifted from investors and bondholders to ratepayers. And I think that's sort of another example of the results we've seen from that. And you're correct to point out that this is a risk that shift off of investors because these are investor-owned utilities. I mean, in theory, these are private sector companies playing the game of capitalism, taking risk, potentially experiencing losses. But somehow we've managed to socialize all that loss risk away, no matter how reckless they've been. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the situations sort of particular to nuclear power in South Carolina and Georgia. You know, one of the reasons that shift happened was because Wall Street really was wary of investing in technology that hadn't been tested and and they were unwilling to sort of take a gamble on the first new nuclear plant in the U.S. in 30 years. And so we sort of saw that shift go somewhere and the place it went was to the customers. And we should point out that, once again, there's definitely a political angle here because uh, Mississippi governor, uh, former governor Haley Barber, personally advocated very strongly for this Kemper plant and helped it to become a reality. Right. Yeah. And in Mississippi, this plant was going in one of the poorest parts of the state. And obviously, Mississippi is one of the poorest states in the country. And that's actually not unlike what happened in South Carolina. The summer plant was going in this county that's it's near Columbia, which is the state capital and one of the primary cities of the state. But 
It's a poor sort of rural area that was really looking forward to a windfall of property taxes from this. And obviously, you know, South Carolina is also one of the poorest states in the country, which makes the sort of the hit of these higher power bills even more damaging. Oddly, this story sounds like it was a lot more about jobs and money and power than it was about actual electricity supply and what was needed by customers. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Hmm. So do we know how much ratepayers are going to wind up on the hook for Kemper? I think the last number I saw was that they had another $853 million left to pay, but that number may have changed. Okay. So as reported in Tony Bartlemay's December opus for The Post and Courier, a terrific long-form piece titled Power Failure, Kemper wasn't the only such plant here. Duke Energy had a clean coal project in Edwardsport, Indiana, whose cost grew from $1.9 billion to $3.7 billion before Duke gave up and just ran it as a regular gas plant, foisting billions of unneeded expenses on ratepayers. And then there was the Crystal River nuclear project in Florida, where Duke customers will pay $1.3 billion just in decommissioning costs for a reactor where they just paid for a bungled $381 million upgrade before the plant was shuttered. And then there's the Florida Power and Light Nuclear Turkey Point plant, where Florida customers have just shelled out $6 billion for plants that may not ever even operate. And that's not even the whole list. I mean, there seems to be a lot more going on here than just poor judgment or, you know, a few failed projects with problems. This seems like a much more systemic problem. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's what our reporting has showed. I mean, obviously, projects like VC Summer and Kemper and Vodal have sort of taken a lot of the attention just because of the size of the problems there. And they account for billions of dollars that ratepayers have been stuck with. But you're right. I mean, there are laws that have been passed in at least 11 states that have shifted risk from investors to customers. And in those places, you know, it's often been almost more of a death of a thousand cuts. I mean, you mentioned the situation, the couple of plants in in Florida that either were bungled or never even broke ground in the case of a couple of proposed nuclear projects. So there were about five projects there under their equivalent law, and they ended up costing about $6 billion. And none was as spectacular a, a mess as VC Summer, but the costs are, you know, at least in that ballpark. And in the end, they ended up with the equivalent of about half of one modern reactor, so sort of a mid-sized power plant. But yeah, I think you're right that it sort of shows that that these laws kind of tied the hands of utility regulators at best or that regulators had sort of been captured by industry at worst. And it shows that there's sort of this deference I mentioned from lawmakers that, you know, utilities that they know well and that often are headquartered in the home state will do right by the state. And I think that, you know, the situations we've seen in these 11 states, certainly in South Carolina, shows that that's not always the test. These are companies that have enormous political sway, and they really brought it to bear on these laws, and we're now sort of unpacking those results. Okay. So, yeah, we clearly need to start talking about the actual laws sure. <laughs> that are operable here in the 11 states where they're present. So just to recap, so here we have these, these three mega power projects in the South, plus a handful of smaller ones, all of them way over schedule and over budget. And collectively, they'll consume at least $40 billion of customer money for no customer benefit. And as you and your colleagues at the Post and Courier have detailed, these plants have something in common, a thing called advanced cost recovery. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The California Public Utilities Commission has unanimously ruled that the state's last nuclear plant, the Diablo Canyon plant near San Luis Obispo, will close in 2025, as that plant's owner, PG&E, originally announced in 2016. At the time, the utility found that the plant was no longer needed full-time, as renewables, efficiency measures, and the spread of community choice aggregators, or CCAs, diminished the demand for the plant's power. Because nuclear plants have high fixed costs, Diablo Canyon had effectively become too expensive to run part-time and uncompetitive with other power generation options. The CPUC order did not require that the plant's output, currently 9% of the state's electricity, had to be replaced with carbon emissions-free alternatives, and it rejected some of the provisions that PG&E had hammered out with environmental groups in the 2016 agreement, including funding for employee retention, community impact mitigation, and energy efficiency programs. PG&E will now have to start figuring out how it intends to replace the plant's generation under the regular utility procurement process. Item 2. The notice of proposed rule, or NOPER, that Energy Secretary Perry put before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, last year, was unanimously rejected by FERC in early January. FERC ruled that the NOPER, which was intended to subsidize economically failing coal and nuclear plants as promised by President Trump, failed to show that the... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.